Welcome to The Big Deal with Glenn Ferris, episode 65. Today I've got photographer Bird Williams IV on. Since Bird has moved downtown several years ago, he and his dog Concho have really become a fixture of the square. And in this episode, we get to chat about his deep photography roots, tracing back four generations, the philosophy behind being a documentarian versus an artist, uh, the Williams family collection at UNT, future projects, and much, much more. I love Bird. He is such an interesting character, and I've been wanting to get with him for a while, and I'm so glad we carved out some time this week to have this conversation. Check out his Facebook page. That's B-Y-R-D Williams. And while you're at it, go ahead, check out glennferriscommercial.com. And go ahead, follow me and Bird on social media. I'm at Glenn and Bird, he's just on Facebook, I think. He really should be on Instagram, though. So if somebody knows him, tell him, Bird, you got to get with the times. Get on Instagram. I hope you find this podcast helpful. And if you do, get on your podcast subscriber, whether it's Apple Pods or Spotify or Overcast, and hit subscribe. Impress your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Now give it up for Bird Williams the Fourth. So um, we're not neighbors anymore. Ah, that makes okay. me very sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I got to kind of back up a little bit. That That's kind of how we met was you, uh, golly, you kind of called me out of the blue uh, looking for a space to, to rent downtown, I think. Wasn't we that how we met? Well, we had a mutual friend, Marshall Surratt. That's right. That's a- right. And Marshall. he, yeah. I had talked to him. And so I was looking in the suburbs, which I don't like the suburbs. I've yeah. been living downtown Dallas. Yeah, for ten years before that. So, yeah, he he hooked me up with you and that's uh, right. Got me in perfect space. That's awesome. Yeah, and you live. Uh, it's kind of funny. A couple of podcasts ago, I did Kristen uh, Bigley, who's the yeah. She's down in the UNT collab below you mm-hmm. in yes. that building. That's a cool building, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, it's it's great. Ed Canada. Yeah, Ed Canada. <laughs> that guy's a trip. Oh, I love him. Yeah, yeah he's so much fun. <laughs> He'll call you at like five in the morning too. Yeah, Has I he know. Done that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, he uh, PBS guys the, are doing a broadcast, and they did part of it in his building, and it shows the front. So he's excited about that. Oh, <laughs> move like a little more in front of the mic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Man, that's cool. I love that building. It's got some cool history. Um, mm-hmm. He restored it almost like an old classic car. You know. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, it, it totally fits like kind of what you do, you know, mm-hmm. and you're, uh, you're probably one of the only people that I've ever met. I'm trying to think back that, that you're a photographer, but you're like, you're not a photographer. You're, you approach it like a painter. I mean, you're an artist, right? Right. Yeah. Um, lately I've been calling myself a, uh, documentary photographer or yeah. a anthropologist and, and I have one foot in art. And one foot in history. And how did you get there? Like, kind of, what's your background? Pretend we haven't had all of our conversations okay, already. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, just growing up, actually, in uh, the 1950s in Fort Worth, as a little kid, uh, my family was in the business, photography business. So I just had this unlimited amount of uh, film, and I had a dark room early on, and so I just I shot and printed, and and I I realized that. In, in a photographic culture, which since 1826, 
um, nothing really happens anymore without a photograph. You know, it's the old tree falling in the forest. So I, I, I got it early on that when there was a foot race, I had to be there to get, you know, photograph the winner. If there was a birthday, I had to be there. And I wasn't doing it professionally. Of course, I was eight. <laughs> so, so you got a camera when you were eight and you were yeah. like, mm -hmm. well, so you're the you're the fourth. And the, yes. the first Bird Williams mm -hmm. had a a shop that he sold postcards, I believe is what I've read. And, yeah, and did and, a little portrait work on the that, square in Gainesville. And that was 1880, yeah. I think? Yeah, mm -hmm. started right in there. They got there a little before that, but he, 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 he tried his hand at farming right outside of Era, Ira, uh, uh, okay. not too far from Gainesville. And after that, he, he opened up the store and uh, sold cameras and things like that. That's how we got into it. 1880. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So it's been in the family for the four generations. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, when you were eight, did you know that you were part of, uh, I, I guess you did, but was that what compelled you to do it? Or you had a real interest? I mean, it sounds like you did. If you had a yeah. gut feeling of like, I got to be there to document this thing. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's how I got, uh, our, I fell in love with documentary is recording our life as it goes on rather than I, I later did professional work and everything from weddings to architecture to yeah. whatever. But, uh, my favorite and what I'm involved in now has to do with almost visual diary kind of work. Yes. Yeah, so so w when you were eight, was it, what pushed you to do that? Did you know what, what compelled you to, to want to be there to document? Were you thinking like big picture, big world, like, uh, <laughs> I don't like think it was that far. It was uh, a matter of having a, a kind of a neighborhood importance. Uh, anybody on the block or on the neighborhood, three or four block area that needed anything, uh, I had the camera, an unlimited film, and a darkroom. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd get called, and I, I always loved it. I loved being a part of it. And I learned how to get access to strangers and to uh, subject matter from that age. You know, it, it, it required, when I worked downtown Dallas, it's a little more scaly than Denton. Denton's wonderful. It's just artists and everything. You know? Everyone, so, everyone's ready to said, hang I, out and get I their take, picture taken. Can yeah. I take your picture? They said, oh, yeah. You Dallas, know, they, yeah. they call the cops. You know, got, what are you doing? Hey, yeah. Yeah. Are What's you this for? Yeah. How much is it? How are you trying to scam me? <laughs> so I feel the same way about podcasts. Like it, this setup has given me the opportunity to call people that yeah. I have no reason to call mm -hmm. or, but I'm curious. I'm yeah. just, I want to talk to folks, but I imagine that's, uh, that drives it a lot. Even to this day, I, I did a lot. My favorite professional commercial work was editorial and magazine work because they, they knew me and I was a good talker. So they'd call and say, Oh, this is a strange group call bird. <laughs> <laughs> I could always talk my way in, you know? And, yeah. uh, uh, that was always my favorite. It's like what you said about doing these interviews is, it, it it's a kind of a nosiness, you know, I'd yeah. love to go on in and just hearing about their lives and, um, you know, uh, maybe tiny bit of journalism in us. Yeah. So what's your, I mean, what's your approach to it? Would you say it's more artistic or documentary or both? Is it like even it, it, or? It's both now. For years, I was an art teacher and a, a, a professor that taught and had to, kind of set that up with an art incentive, with an art um, substrate, so to speak. And it's a little bit different. Uh, really, art is about my own story. In other words, if an artist makes it, it's their story 
Whereas with documentary, it's the community story. And I kind of, as I got older, it felt like I was giving something back when I kept uh, on the documentary side. Now, that's what, not, what do you mean by that? Like, and t- take that take that apart a little more. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if I do a piece of art, I might. It, it has one toe in fiction. It does. Uh, it has nothing really to do with the subject. It doesn't have anything to do with. It has to do with my opinions and my heartfelt stuff. Right. And, and painters, sculptors work that way. Uh, so it's their story. It's the artist's story. Yeah. But when I put on the documentary or anthropology, it's more like an ethnography. In other words, I owe the truth to the historians that are going to see it in 100 or 200 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, it, they're not vanity portraits. They're not vanity pictures of the square. It, it is honest and, and, mm-hmm. and bitingly sharp and clear. And I shoot in black and white only because it's permanent. I, I like color. I shoot a lot of digital, but I use these old plate cameras because once you tone them in gold, they're you know five hundred years, whereas digital color prints a hundred years. And this way, it gives a permanent record. And all of a sudden, a, a kind of a, a, a self righteousness comes with that. You know, like well, I'm, you, I'm uh, the keeper of the moments. Yeah, you of. can't be wrong. It's, yeah, because right, yeah. you're telling that you know it's truth. It, it, yeah. It's it's a little bit like a a, a doctor's oath, a, Hippocratic. Yeah, yeah. Hippocratic oath. Um, I could lie. I could say these things, but there is a kind of a, a alliance with the whole enterprise that that I'm going to tell the truth and show who we are. You know. Yeah. Well, how does that play out technically? We, we've talked about this before about uh, how long some of the prints last. The technique that you use with gold, mm-hmm. I think, is a gold yeah. print. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, talk talk about that a little bit. Well, it starts with a like a uh, uh, with silver, and that's a standard old-time black-and-white paper that's that's floating in a gelatin, silver particles. And, but that's that's uh, subjected to um, atmospheric problems, exhaust fumes, and they still have a pretty long life. We have them made like that from the early 1830s that are fine. The first that's what you see in the museum, silver gelatin, right? right? Yeah, silver gelatin. Mm-hmm. And then I put a coating of a metal called selenium on it, which attacks the shadows, and so it coats the shadows but not the highlights. And then I put it in a solution of uh, gold chloride, which attacks the highlights. And so I have a three-metal print. It's supposedly one of the most permanent. It rivals oil paintings in its longevity. So why not work that way, particularly since I have... Uh, I think they're pretty, and I used them when I, uh, for art. But this has more of a historical attachment so that I can be sure they make it. Not only that, it doesn't require any technology. You don't have to open it up in a computer for platform changes. It doesn't matter. Photographs are flat and dead, and they they store easily. They don't require any technology to view them, and they tend to go on and on. You know, especially when they're in a the protection of a museum, just as the UNT Special Collections yeah. uh, has has taken over it, and they they put it in the right temperature. So they've. By the way they store it, they've even doubled the life. It'll it, they'll be around for how long? What's the well? Uh, there's a independent group in Europe, I think Holland, that uh, did tests on these materials, and it, it it's between four and eight hundred years. So I'm okay with either number. Can you imagine <laughs> uh, seeing a photograph that was taken that sharply eight from eight hundred years yeah. ago? What what I uh, pattern these portraits I'm doing in that little studio on the square is 
Egyptian Fayum portraits. What, what is that? Well, uh, 3,500 years ago, they would paint a little portrait of you to put on your casket or your, 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 uh, when you died. And they're still fine because it was a solid hmm. pigment that lasts forever. That's 3,500 years. And it's in the desert. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That so it, yeah. It, it's perfect. Uh, uh, and it, as far as uh, being able to last, like an archaeologist would, would like. So th- that's where I got the idea for these bland, straightforward portraits so they can just, the future can see who we are and how we dress different. They also at UNT have a... A collection of Civil War portraits, and um, you know, if you shave the head and take off all our clothes, and you could to them back then, we're the same. The clothes marks the culture. So the anthropologist that I'm working with is kind of looking at um, how clothes affect us, and also vanity. Our vanity is much more pervasive. I like how we view ourselves. Yeah. yeah, I have to have a fight with nearly everybody because they're used to Photoshop and color, <laughs> and they yeah. don't like it. There's a lot of young, pretty people in it. That uh, you're young and pretty, you look great. Oh, come in on, your man. Oh, <laughs> so, being kind. But but a lot of middle-aged people I know that are, are horrified when they see because it's like putting your face on a a, a, a copy machine. Uh, it's more like a medical picture. Yeah. It's more like a medical picture, especially yeah. when I, I get them up real large. You can see every, yeah, every single pore. pore you know. So t- um, t- talk about the camera you use to do these. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and I've done this. Full disclosure, I've been up there and gotten my picture taken. Um, they're big. I mean, yeah. they're the size of a, golly, the, uh, this bag sitting here. Uh, how big are they? Well, a a doghouse size. <laughs> well, how big, how big is the negative well, the, on these things? Yeah, the like negative on the biggest or? one. No, the biggest one is uh, uh, 20 inch. It's, 20 inches? Yeah, it's the ones I was doing the faces with yeah. are 12 by 20 inches. And then the full wings I'm doing with an 11 by 14. And then I'll do... How many th- megapixels is that? Uh, a lot. <laughs> you know, the, if, if you look at... Um, uh, a, a film uh, a 35 millimeter has 36 million uh, grains of silver in it so you could imagine a piece that big. i did not yeah. know that yeah, oh wow yeah. Uh, yeah so uh it's just it's little tiny microscopic particles of silver is where it starts and it, it's it's binary it's plus and minus the silver either turns black or stays clear you know, so it's clear, plus yeah, one, okay, yeah. And then, oh, it's like when you see a negative, you have either a dark spot or right. a And if, if it's light gray, spot, yeah. it's just mixed of the two. It's a mix, yeah, of of uh, gray or of black and, and white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did you get so uh, technical about it? I mean, so at at eight, you had this drive to go document mm-hmm. the. Where did the genesis happen to? or well, the, the, the transformation happened for you we had when i was eight we had a dark room at home and of course dad had a studio and i think somewhere else that i didn't go to much but at home so i'd watch him print and he encouraged me to print at a pretty young age and then as soon as i got it was like a farm family you know how you have a bunch of kids because you have to raise the crops and you uh, our whole family was it's a lot of work to do well yeah. it, it wasn't just a studio it was a photo lab one of the first in texas and we did uh uh, photo finishing was what it's called. We developed film for families all over Texas. You bring it to the drugstore. We'd send a delivery car out. It's mostly North Texas, but yeah. uh, uh, that I grew up in that. We also had a studio, but that was a uh, twenty employees uh, with giant machines that factory processed everything. You know, 
So the technical thing came kind of early for you. You were just exposed to it. You just right. It yes. was part of your blood. And you'd being a kid too, it was interesting. Like any kid, some kids fly kites, some do uh, make model cars. I had this room with these trays, and when you put a piece of paper in it, a picture would emerge. Yeah, would come up, and that that pretty fascinating. Yeah, you were hooked instantly. Plus, yeah. being the uh, keeper of the moments, owning that was really a kind of a vain thing for me because you couldn't get to the future without going through me but in my little, in, in my little neighborhood but you know i i've, I've yeah. kind of kept that that's what gets me up and makes me want to do it every day yeah that's what drives your work yeah yeah so talk about the um the uh, collection that's at willis library that uh you mm -hmm. I, I mean this is you've got four generations of yeah. of mm -hmm. photography yeah. Uh, how did that come about? How did you find it? Like well, um, it was always kind of around. We had a fairly big building with the photo lab, and there was a storage area, and everything was improperly stored. By the way, it wasn't. It wasn't air conditioned for the storage was, and my great grandfather that had the hardware sto general store in Gainesville, he started shooting portraits on the side. There's a little area in the back. Uh, I was just up there looking at it. It's still there. Uh, in the back that he did portraits plus he started going around he, he he ordered a kodak postcard camera which made pictures specifically the size of postcards you couldn't enlarge them then so and then on the back of the parent it already had the stuff in so you put the address and you put your note and he just did things around texas to sell his postcards for people that came through yeah and that started it and then his sons uh, my grandfather, Bird Jr., uh, started earning money on the side, shooting portraits, going to people's houses, kind of an itinerant kind of a thing. And then when he went to University of Texas, he worked his way through school as a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then that went, then Dad took it. They started a photo lab. They started yeah. a studio. And I just came to consciousness in that world. Well, what about the collection, though? The, uh, the it, bird? It, they were pack rings. rats, all of it. Uh, from letters to their field notes to their cameras, it's all there because yeah. they kept everything. So when I was a little bitty kid in the 50s, my uh, great-grandmother died in there. They got a lot, some of this stuff, the oldest stuff, out of below her house. You know, those black and white pictures from the 1880s looked like they were made yesterday. Yeah. You know, and this was in the 1950s. They found some of them. So we accumulated them. When I was about 16 or 17, Dad said, they're yours. So they were just collecting every kind of everything they did. They they have mm -hmm. these negatives. They're given the prints, but they mm -hmm. have the yeah the film that they de developed. They were I just, have the original films. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, they they they're nitrate and it's very delicate, and they tend to like a lot of collections didn't want them because of movie film it used to be on nitrate, and when it's packed and it gets hot, it'll it's explode. Flammable. It's, yeah. it's uh, a nitroglycerin. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like a, a grenade, yeah. you know, boom. And okay, we were lucky. That, we lost a lot of them, but a lot of them came through. Oh, know? wow. Yeah, so that's why the uh, if you go into like a really old vintage um, movie house, mm -hmm. the film projector is in this fireproof yes. box. Yeah. Because the film is nitrate and will. Like, like uh, it would burn down San Francisco, I oh, think. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. So, well, p p part of the collection, wasn't it? Uh, 
uh, you told me a story about it being found under a house. That was the the one in Gainesville. Okay, and gotcha, when yeah. and these three brothers, my dad and his two brothers, they were discussing throwing it all aside because it was private letters about people who had been shot after the Civil War, mm-hmm. the most private things that people you know usually don't tell. Yeah, but. Um, some of the females in the family said, no, we're saving it. And these letters and a lot of these pictures were never meant to be shown to anybody. Yeah. So I've written about them. I talk about it. Well, there was a famous uh, Civil War Confederate um, uh, colonel in, in my family on grandmother's side that came. And went, uh, he was first officer for Nathan Bedford Forrest, which is who started the KKK. Yeah. And, and like in this day and age, there's a thought that, well, you would hide that, you would, but we won't heal from that stuff. Unless, I put it all out there. Even I have the letter that or UNT does. When he got shot, he got shot in the armpit and uh, fighting with somebody. And he ran from Tennessee when the war ended down here. So he got here before the Williamses. But then the two families, their kids married. So okay. I... I turned all that over, and and a part of the film that's coming up in a couple of weeks has to do with um, these uh, family mortality. It's yeah. all in the letters. There was t- tuberculosis, TB in my family, and nobody would tell anybody because there was no cure. And if in Gainesville they found out somebody had TB, they'd run you out of town. Yeah, and that's in the letters. Uh, Eventually, they got a cure for antibiotics, I guess. But uh, yeah. for the longest time, it, it was like the COVID of its day. You know? Yeah. Well, it's almost like you found someone's hard drive with, with all yes. the emails yeah. on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's got to be a certain amount of distance between those emails, let's call them emails, getting written and being able to put them in the museum to where they're actually valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that amount of time obviously has happened in four generations, I guess. So that was kind of the thought, I guess. Yeah, when when I took it over in uh, the uh, late 60s, Dad just kind of turned it over to me, and then I got married at 18, and I took it all out, and I schlupped it. I must have moved 20 times. <laughs> and it, uh, yeah. it took up a room and a half, so I, could, I always had to rent space for it because if uh, I got a one- or two-bedroom, which is all I needed, you know, it wouldn't work. I'd have to get a three or four bedroom to be able to store the collection. Oh my goodness! It's letters, it's cameras, it's diaries, it's oh books, a book collection, uh, the, all of that you wow. know, came. So uh, a lot of it got damaged. You know, my push to get it placed somewhere, and it was first going to go to um, Austin, and then to the Houston Museum of Fine Arts, and then <laughs> there were several other places. But I always kind of broke my heart that it would be away from this community and it, it kind of belongs to the community so when UNT came up gosh it's just 30 miles from where it started yeah you know, so I, I was very pleased that's one of the reasons that I had the incentive to come up here and live near it for a while and now I've fallen in love with Denton Denton's awesome right? it's, <laughs> it's amazing the best. yeah it's the best especially if you're a photographer everybody yeah. lets me photograph uh, yeah <laughs> So yeah, I, I uh, uh, that, that that I'm so glad it went to UNT and that they have put the time in it. And they're building their collection, so it's going to be a, a very nice Texas collection of, of all kinds of things. So what do you what, what do you hope that future people learn from looking at it? I mean, you how much of it have you been through? Sorry, that's two questions, but yeah, but but how 
I don't know. I think sometime or another, I must have been through all of it. But just lately, I've been uh, the the archivists, the scientists, the historians up there have been showing me stuff I don't remember ever seeing. Oh, you yeah. know, photographs okay. of things, and they did a lot of it. You know, people are dead. I don't know where it was or where it took place, but they have software and ways to. They even recorded a mountain range, and we were able to pinpoint right where Great Granddaddy stood in, in Utah. Oh. It turned out to be Ogden, Utah. <laughs> and so they have been researching the places where these are, which is a thrill for me because I, I, had, I had no idea. And we're, we're now also there's, uh, trying to trace down the people because you go back a couple of generations, everybody's been dead since turn of the century, you know, and so... It's difficult, and my cousin Alice, my uh, uh, she has a large number. Uh, we share a grandfather, the photographer, and she has a lot of them in London. She lives in London, and so I'm supposed to go over there. She said she'd like to add those to the collection. So there's getting ready to be, you know, several thousand more negatives come from prior to 1910. My goodness. So what do you hope uh, can be? learn from this like as a anthropologist you know uh, well i i'm uh um it, it just gives us a look in a way here's a good example i always tell my students is wouldn't you have loved but we've got the pyramids we've got all that wonderful stuff in luxor and everything of the egyptian life but wouldn't you have loved to go in and see where the egyptian workers that worked on the pyramid where they ate where they lived the stuff in uh, where they went to the bathroom, where yeah. they, you know, every single thing uh, that we need to know, that's all gone. Most of the story of the past is rich people or clergy or so. You know, mm. we see paintings from the Middle Ages. It's, it's, it's kings and queens and royalty. This is middle class commoners every day, and that's one of the rich things about photography is it fell in the lap of uh, uh, middle class. You know, we, when that came around, it came along with the industrial age. And this is a very close private look, complete with words and pictures of a family. Mar marital fights. My grandfather moved to, cause he, he, to uh, El Paso. That's when he photographed Pancho Villa. He was living out there. And the letters back and forth, they were about to get divorced. This is in like 1912. Nobody talked about that. Nobody got divorced then. But he didn't want to stay in Gainesville. He wanted to go to El Paso, you know, so that, that the fight started in all of those letters. And Glenn, it's not much different. Uh, if you're in a relationship, you end up having those things. And they're usually kept private. But this is a tiny little glimpse, like you said, almost like emails, you know, or texts. A little glimpse into they weren't so much different. They, they uh, had the same problems, the same things we do today. Yeah. So what do you hope people uh, learn from it? I mean, can you, are you projecting 400 years from now and what yeah, we're I, all going to have Neuralink and talking with our brains maybe, and maybe hey, let's I, look I, at these old letters <laughs> when people used to actually write with their hands, you know, losers. <laughs> yeah. That's, I know. It's exactly. And you know, uh, that, that the same thing I had in elementary school when I would be asked to go photograph a foot race um, now, I have those pictures. They're in the collection. And who cares if Johnny Gilbert or Brett Forster won that race? It doesn't matter, but yeah. it's, it's a glimpse in 1957 of a foot race by little kids. Uh, it, it, the, the same goes with all of this. Now, when I'm photographing you up in the studio and the people around Denton, 
it's not for us. I, I, I don't really care what the natives think. You know, the people here, if they don't like the way they look, it, it's not for us. It's for the unborn. It's for the historians that will be born in a hundred years. And so, yeah, I, I often um, uh, reflect on somebody sitting there, what it'll be like, uh, you know, looking at us and, and, and seeing. And I'm doing it with intent. I, I've done the square. I've done all the shops. I've done the people, how we dress. So they'll have a pretty good record of this, along with the other work I did in Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah. Um, the, there are photos of uh, the square, uh, the building I lived in, um, from like 1912 and there are people sitting up in the window. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's crazy to think yeah. about the, yes. the same window. We stand there and look at it. Like that. there are people sitting up there smoking their pipes and cigars. And I love that kind of thing. I, I mean, love I, I love too. sitting yeah. there. I, uh, when I go to Europe, I studied art history in Europe. And when I go over there, I always hunt down one of my favorite painters, uh, whichever one. And I go stand where he stood to paint. This is almost religious. It's kind of yeah. because what do I get out of that? But it's that what you're talking about mm. to see the scene that they saw. Mm. And, and I've, I've, I've rephotographed those scenes. I, it's in the collection. I don't know that I'd ever show that as art because it's mostly about a, a spiritual thing that, that I get to pass these uh, things forward. Yeah. Well, part of it is also, I mean, you're talking about, uh, I mean, it's existential, but it's also the concept of time and how time mm-hmm. passes. Yeah. The, um, you know, one thing I was thinking about that this reminds me of is, uh, Brian Eno did some installation. I think it was in West Texas. He, he, he just talked about it and designed it, but it was a, uh, what was it? It was like a, it was, a uh, like a mechanical clock built into a mountain that only chimed like every 2000 years or something. And it's it's like the whole, the whole thing was just to make you imagine like the scale of time and how you fit in and all that stuff. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what it sounds like. Exactly. You've kind of uh, hit it there. I, it it is, it is that way. Uh, This is kind of heavy sounding, but uh, and I think dad and granddad realized this too. We, we weren't a very religious family. Uh, and, it became photography became a kind of a surrogate religion in other words we're saving everybody's weddings we're saving everybody <laughs> and um i always kind of felt i was privileged baby that almost like i was in the priesthood in a way you know yeah. uh and it replaced that that afterlife photographs i had this thing uh that i i i stole from catholics of transubstantiation how your body and blood turns into the i always say my friends turn into silver and uh, cotton uh, 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 <laughs> you yeah. know so it's photographic transubstantiation and that's going to last much longer than we are yeah is that how you kind of approach it like a yeah, monk absolutely i mean you're sure, i mean because sure. you, the only time i i see you you're walking concho cutest dog downtown <laughs> that's what you should do yeah. dogs of downtown they're a couple adorable <laughs> little good. puppers yeah that's great that, that's a uh, coffee table book mm-hmm. idea for you but do you kind of you, you kind of approach it like a monk i mean you uh, i imagine you up there uh living and breathing and uh you know i, I read uh something about how one of the ways you edit is you put photos up in the bathroom 
Yeah. Good. <laughs> I mean, you live and breathe this stuff. I, yeah. I imagine with, with a little cot and then your printing supplies and everything next yeah. to it. When I lived downtown Dallas and I, for a while, was teaching up in Plano and then for a while in, in um, A&M out in Commerce, uh, I would tape my work to the dashboard of my car because it was an hour drive. And the good ones you wouldn't get tired of. The bad ones you get <laughs> tired of. So I edited in that way, in the right. bathroom, okay, yeah. on the dashboard of the car. You live with them, yeah. and they begin to talk to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what's it like for you to do like a exhibit? Do you do exhibits, or are you... Uh... Uh, uh, yes, quite a bit in the past, and lately I'm still getting calls for it, and I'm showing some of this uh, portrait documentary work, which doesn't fit a gallery in, environment so much because galleries have to make money, and this is not sellable to the general public. It's more like work that would be uh, shown in a museum or a place where it's not for sale for historic reasons. And uh, I I did, I lived in Germany uh, for a couple of years and then off and on for 10 or 15 and I had a gallery there. And then I was doing full on uh, willy nilly artwork that was designed <laughs> to be sold. Um, it, it was street corners and things like that. And they were in color and they, uh, were meant to be pretty, n- not like a flower, like you, uh, the, the, the general layperson would buy, but somebody that wanted something kind of odd and interesting. I, I was kind of in that category. These, yeah. these were, uh, street corners and how, um, each culture, whether it's English, Dutch, uh, Spanish, their street corners reflect their culture in a way. Yeah. And so you could get three. We'll to go to New there. York and like yeah. picture of a bodega and cat <laughs> yes. on the counter and all that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was more of your artistic stuff that yeah. you did. Was mm-hmm. well, I, I think you know it's it's not pretty, but it it has an aesthetic. Yeah, it's put together in a certain way that people would want it. You know? Yeah, and they were they were real colorful, and I kind of think they were kind of pretty in an odd way. Some things can be beautiful and yeah. and be unsettling in a little bit. Yeah, are you not doing that sort of? Uh, f- I I will again. I'm planning a shot out now with another photographer uh, from L.A. May come out, um, and and um, there there's a there's an idea I worked. A little bit with Richard Avedon, who is a photographer from New York and was famous at the time. And um, he used to say this that um, portraits, the snapshot is the last vestige of honesty in photography, even though we know there's no fo- photographs that are really totally honest because i could photograph you and say glenn is lonely and there could be eight people right outside the frame you know (laughs) so uh the idea is that when it looks like a snapshot when it has an odd kind of even a touch of amateurness people buy into it what do you mean like a like a candid a candid yes it it, uh one who made it famous was gary winogrand the frame could be a little bit crooked gotcha uh the people don't look beautiful uh they look a little off kilter you know that decisive moment thing and um so i started uh i'm thinking about doing some very large prints that at first glance look like a snapshot but they're too rich and clear and it'll be something about them kind of buried down in them that will be a little bit odd that you have mm. to look at for a minute does it work on a 
like subconscious level like you like you got to look at it for a while to figure mm-hmm. out well, why, why am I, mm-hmm. why am I sensing this was just uh, off the, like from the hip. Yeah. And, but and they're not from the hip is what you're saying. They're staged. Oh yeah. 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 They're hundred percent. a big camera color yeah, yeah. and, and it's actors and this, this, oh, this is okay. totally artwork. This isn't anything to do with my documentary. So I'm going to step back into that art world and, yeah. and do these. There's some other people on the coast and stuff that have worked this way. It's not an original way to work, but I'm intrigued by it because you're kind of dealing with the feelings of the layperson mm-hmm. and not sure where to put it. You know, the museum and the art people know exactly what's going on. You know, uh, that sounds kind of snobby, doesn't it? But it, uh, I like the fact that people go to the gallery and they <laughs> yeah. go, wait a minute, what is this? Wait, what is this? Yeah. And it, it has to be so deliciously colorful and sharp that they're taken in from that yeah you're drawn to it like yeah yeah. it's so clear uh my favorite painters when i was studying in europe were those northern renaissance guys that painted on wood with tiny little brushes and jan van eyck and uh uh, roger campaign you can see every thread in the clothes and so when you use a large camera you're delivering that the photographs then have touch things that are slick look slick things that are rough look rough and uh that takes them in right off because it's beyond anything that you normally see. And then all of a sudden you start having to deal with the subject and something just not right. Yeah. Something's a little bit odd. Well, does the oddness uh, also draw you in for, uh, as far as like it, that feeling of, mm-hmm. okay, this, this, uh, your first uh, intuition is this isn't staged, but then it's like, oh, that, mm-hmm. I mean, that's another kind of draw mm-hmm. into the, Exactly. There's a perception in the lay world that, um, turn that off, there's a perception in the lay world that photographs have to be eye candy. They have to be pretty to hang in your house and make you feel good every day. But I, I have always felt that still photographs have the same access to the emotions as movies. Yeah. Don't you like a scary movie? Oh, or 100%. A, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so it, it, it's, it's emotional it's, response. It's not necessarily like that's beautiful. One it's of the, my main inspirations, David Lynch. You don't yeah, have his. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, see, yeah. so if I, a I still, head, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I still photograph it <laughs> yeah. somewhere between real and not real. Yeah. And, and, and the a person that's not expecting it uh, doesn't know quite where to place it. You yeah. know, I, most of my uh close family they, they don't get david <laughs> or any of those guys that do those kind of odd films and they don't get my work either when i was doing that kind of work they don't get the documentary one of them they're just two different um incentives two different um uh substrates how you approach them so where do you get your ideas for when you're staging the the uh, large format uh photos that you're going to be doing like how do you come up with the content well, are you I, trying to tell a story or are you trying to tell have, an emotional story or an actual yeah. story uh, I, I start with a kind of a common scene like the one that i had in mind uh, to do was just uh, uh, a local pub down here on beer alley because i know i'm all like get access one? um uh, ben oh uh, Monk. 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 yeah Ben and, and because, guy. yeah, and, and, and because too, there was a waitress working there na- named uh, uh, Kaylin, a tall, statuesque, six foot. I, I don't know how tall she is, but green hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, uh, yeah. I, I kind of base in the shot around the place, the people that are there, and to use her as a central point, not because necessarily of 
everybody right off, even when I tell them about it, they picture fashion. You know, it's going to be fashion. You're going to look good, and everybody's kind of wanting to do it. But when they see how odd it is and how unexpected, they usually <laughs> don't like it. So now I'm thinking about not using an amateur and actually hiring a professional because of... Um, well, do you pitch it like, uh, think David Lynch... Of yeah, photo. I do. You do, yes, yeah. and people people still think they still don't because Americans, oh, yeah, yeah. in particular, feel they own their own image. They're mad as hell if you don't do what they need to. That's why these historic things, people can't smile because when you smile, you've stolen the picture from me. It now belongs to you and your grandmother, and you're going to give it to her for Christmas. No, these belong to historians, and I cannot have that American grin on your face. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's the same on this, right off the bat. Even some mm. of the people who should know better will come in. There are other photographers that are assisting me, and they say, oh, we can no, they're doing okay, and, and and it suddenly turns into a fashion <laughs> yeah. shoot, yeah, which is the last thing I want. If anything, I would want it to be a little bit um, uh, sexy, but uh, off-putting, a little odd, no nudity, just just um, uh, I, I can't think of the word right now. Like Twin you, Peaks, odd. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, well, yeah, man. Twin Peaks is man such a. It's like you look at it and it seems like, oh, this is your average murder mystery, mm -hmm. small town, mm -hmm. you know, investigation show. It's anything but. It's anything you know? but. Who's the guy that did Hairspray? Um, oh, it was all based on kind of 1960s or 50s high school stuff, but it is so far out there. Mm -hmm. and most people can't deal with it. I can't, his name, famous. Uh, I mean, Hairspray the Musical. Uh, well, there's one. Well, it's a musical Broadway now. It was originally a film by. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, uh, I'll think of his name in a second. Film. Yeah, slip my head. It's it's uh, it's almost too odd for everybody. Yeah, but I like those. I, I'm not going to take it too far. Actually, I just want it to appear first glance. Like, why is he overdoing uh, a snapshot? Yeah. You know, the feeling when you've pulled open a drawer at somebody's house and there's family snapshots that might be a little private, and so you close it. You know, not mm. that I do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, you know, we're talking about that odd, uncomfortable uh, aspect. What, drill into that a little bit. What is the, it's almost like, it's like the underlying narrative that no one wants to talk about but it's there i mean is that kind of the oddness exactly. you're getting getting and, and after? it wouldn't work if it's too much up front like a lynch movie i like the way lynch kind of keeps it but before his movies are over it's it's right out there psychological yeah, yeah this this a, is uh it's a hint you have to work at it a little bit like did he mean to do that or is but if it's oh, a room yeah. full of them they'll they'll, they'll yeah. get the joke after a while you know? yeah yeah <laughs> well almost and th this is probably too heavy-handed but i think of like kubrick and like the shining like all the the it's creepy it's mm -hmm. you know it's obviously creepy but if you really look at how detailed the mm -hmm. creepiness you're like oh i didn't i did not know that that is what they were referring to mm -hmm. but it's in there right. and it's like subconsciously it adds layers of creepiness almost, mm -hmm. but you're doing that with oddness. And, and most everybody, whether they like it or not, can relate to it a little bit. You know, you want it on the edge thinking, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? To where it's just on the edge of, if, if you haven't experienced it, you kind of know what's kind of going on there. And I, I would probably 
tiptoe on the edge of being provocative, you know, like like one shot. Everybody's just sitting around the bar. It's a boring night. Looks like a snapshot you do. And this very tall girl with green hair uh, is uh, in the middle of the frame. You can't miss her. And she doesn't have her shirt on, but she has a bra. And it's a bra like one of those old lace bras from the 1950s. They used to wear these huge bras. I remember my grandmother. I was a little kid growing up with a house full of women. And I remember them from that. So it doesn't show any flash. But why would she be wearing that? And she'd be kind of submerged into the crowd. I mean, there's a lot more to the shot than that. But that would be just a little tiny thing to make everybody all of a sudden question it. We have a thing in our culture, and, and I think the future will look at this. If you wear the right kind of underwear, colored right, it's okay to go to the beach with it, a bikini. But if, I, I would tell my students this, you can't strip down your bra and panties in here. You could wear your swimsuit in here, but you can't because <laughs> our culture says, yeah, oh, you can't, uh, that was sold as underwear, and you can't wear it. You could dye it red and blue, maybe get away with it. or so. You see what I'm saying? That's, yeah, yeah. that's the little part that I want to tap into. Yeah, the line is almost a social construct. Right, exactly. It's not a, you hit it. That's it's not it. a, the physical object. It's like mm-hmm. what you believe about the object. Exactly, you know? exactly. Oh, that's funny. You know, you see those pictures of like in the 20s and they're like, swimming with like hats and <laughs> full clothes yeah it's crazy yeah, i know. always wonder like i mean that makes i guess more sense and like uh, yeah what we do now well every every culture draws their line and yeah. I, I used to do a lecture on censorship and um i'd always start out with uh photographs uh, because they seem more real than paintings paintings you can get away so photographs that were censored early on that now everybody goes what uh, edward weston did a photograph of a uh, pepper a shell and it was stuck inside of another shell and it got censored because they said the lady that ran the museum said the shells are doing it <laughs> it's so sexual everybody knows oh, that. Wow. And, and it's like georgia o'keefe you know like it was a pe- friend of hers yeah, oh Edward yeah, Weston. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i probably got the idea from her so yeah. well, well 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 something they say about georgia o'keefe actually uh, so i went to the museum uh in santa fe uh it was a year ago and they said that her work really developed into kind of what you know now because of the camera. The invention of the camera was coming around and mm-hmm. like the the fact that you could put the lens anywhere. And mm-hmm. uh, so she had friends that were putting the lenses like really close to flowers and like mm-hmm. the sexual parts of flowers. And she mm-hmm. was just drawing what she was seeing. And, yeah. it, you know, our brains go to a, oh, my gosh, I, it's, it's so invasive, you know, but it's a fly. It literally was a flower. It wasn't. You I, know. I really loved doing lectures about her. And she married the most famous living photographer at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Stiglitz, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and she was bisexual. And so, God, that was unheard of in that yeah. day. And um, she ended up stealing another famous photographer's wife, Paul Strand's wife, Rebecca Strand. And then they ran off together. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's... it's modern art historians say no biography that's enough biography no by all the students they remember the pictures if you say well this happened and this happened you know yeah that that museum blew my mind because you she's so uh in the culture Mm -hmm. as one thing like everyone knows about her for the thing Mm -hmm. you know 
But then, like her body of work, I mean, she has paintings of New York mm-hmm. that just that are like ten feet tall. That yeah. I'm just like, they're amazing. Yeah. That is that's what New York feels like. You know, and what was cool? Both of them were doing those scenes. Mm-hmm. He was photographing, she was painting, mm-hmm. and I, I always thought it'd be so cool to be married to somebody. We never worked out. You know? <laughs> I'm married to a three artists, but they, you know? <laughs> 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 never got the right combination. Right, right, oh, man. It, it could be a difference in commitment. I, I'm I'm kind of a freak in that way, and uh, even well, my you're students, a monk. Yeah, a monk. Yeah, and I always influence my students to throw their life away and go into art, and then later I'd feel guilty because it's hard to make a living. You really have to have one toe in commercial work, one toe in teaching, one toe, you know. So it's a balancing act. Yes, yeah. yeah, and it's not for everybody. You can be a good artist, but that commitment. Most of the teachers I know aren't committed at that level. So would you say you are a good artist? I mean, to be be self-reflective for a mm, second. Are well, you, um, yeah, you that would be for somebody it. else to, to decide. <laughs> you know, I, I go through uh, mood swings where I think, oh, my God, I can crush rocks. <laughs> you know, and, then, and then I'll look at it and I'll think, this is the stupidest shit I've ever seen. You know, So yeah. um, I, I try not to... I used to worry about it more because, you know, you have tenure, you try to do this, you try to get in your sure. teaching career. I used to think I was an artist, but I was really a school teacher. And because you do art on the side. Now that I'm retired from teaching, I'm a full-time artist and I don't think about it anymore. I don't have to think mm-hmm. if it's contemporary, if the uh, uh, current crowd, you know, show me something new. If it's not new, I just do it. It's just whatever, you know, and that's why I'm planning out these I want to do a few more for the art world, just just as a foil to this documentary. Hmm. When does the documentary come out? Well, it was supposed to be finished in January of this year. Of course, then the the virus hit town and and everything. There was two events planned: one at uh, below me with the UNT gallery, and then mm-hmm. one down at the Greater Denton Arts Council. And they were going to show the full and it. And, and rather than art, since they're anthropology, they're going to put them up in a grid covering one wall, one inch apart, from floor to ceiling. Oh, the across. portraits. The, so, yeah. yeah. So what happens then is all of them become a piece of art. Individually, they're not art. They're anthropology. Hmm. Okay. So uh, I like that idea. We were going to do that. But then it all got postponed. And a filmmaker named Mark Birnbaum has been off and on uh, working on this film about the collection they have. And it, it's finished, and it will show on KERA in a couple of weeks. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, an hour, an hour in the style of Ken Burns. You yeah. Know, he does, yeah, Ken Burns does a still photograph, and it goes by, and there's a voiceover, a museum curator or something. And uh, so that will be on, and then it'll be on the big screen after that uh, sometime. I'll, I'll give you the information. That's yeah. awesome. Man, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it worked out good. It's not so much a vanity film as it is a documentary about documentary, like Ken Burns would do. Yeah. Mark's a brilliant documentary photographer. What do you think you have more passion for, the documentary or the art? Oh, they're the same, really. I mean, for me, as far as the passion goes, yeah. when I'm in the mood to do one, then that's that takes over. Lately, the last few years, I've loved the documentary because I no longer am hanging out with galleries and museums as much as I am historians and anthropologists. Sure, that's kind of a that's kind of a. <laughs> I, I like that crowd. Yeah, it becomes kind of serious and uh, like we're actually doing giving something back. And sometimes when I did artwork, 
it seems sort of throwaway in vain on my part. Not, not that I'm above that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, what's interesting is, you know, one of the hardest things to think or talk about or conceptualize is the intersection of art and commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why is this painting worth something yeah. and this one isn't? Right. You know, or... That is the uh, usual conversation with art teachers and uh, artists. And yeah. Oh, Banksy, you know, and, and there was another, golly, there was a documentary that came out on HBO uh, called The Value of Art or some, The Value of Things or something like that that t- talked about, like, why is this guy making, like, these, like, objects that are ending up in museums and it's based on like who he is. It's like his personality is what it is. And you know, it's like that, man, what a weird thing. One thing that I've been lucky about is I've got to live in, in all three worlds, the, uh, the social science, which is documentary, the commercial, which is taking pictures for money and then uh, fine art, which is a kind of another version of commercial, but they're three different crowds and they don't like each other. Yeah. And it sounds like you get to bounce depending on where your interest is at the time. It's like, and and I get to, when I'm with one group, I get to talk about the other two groups. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) These jerks over here. Well, you know what the fine art, uh, the the, the commercial, uh, the fine art guys say commercial photographers, they got no heart. And then the commercial guys say fine art guys, they got no work ethic. Yeah. (laughs) There's a nugget of truth there. So how do you think you're going to be remembered? I mean, you're in three worlds. Where's your, is your like, I mean, technically your legacy is going to be in the photos that last 800 years. Yeah. But. It, it'll be documentary. And yeah. You, you, a funny huh. thing happens. I, I, I did a lot of work with uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Houston curator Ann Tucker was curated the year uh, with magazines and uh, she's, she's really brilliant. And uh, she said something at a lecture she gave that really resonated and it was that all the art historians now, they decide this one thing. The kids that are coming up, they're going to decide something else. Uh, art belongs to the living culture. It changes. And yeah. it does. It, it changes. Yeah. I show one uh, for, uh, painting by uh, uh, um, Raphael, and he knew, the, the historian Vasari, Giorgio Vasari, knew Raphael in the Renaissance. And he said, well, he meant this, and he did this. Then in the 17th century, the new art historians said, no, 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 no. Sorry, he's wrong. He meant that now it's at the mat, met. Yeah. And they're all saying, no, they're all wrong. <laughs> they, they have decided, and I put up three of the same painting, and we talk about what each group of art historians said about it. It's completely different. It, a culture, art belongs to the living culture. Oh, wow. It's yeah. internalized. You know, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Monet that did the haystacks. Yeah. That, that I mean, he painted like hundreds of, of haystacks just over and over and over and over same haystack but it was like different lighting different time of year all the stuff but it's like he was documenting the haystack but from so many different points of view um man yeah it becomes an obsession but that seems like to me when it's really working when you're lost in the work and and you can't wait to start on the next one and you have this idea you think oh i'm in the middle of this I got another thing coming up, you know, then it's working. Yeah. You know, the worst in this a lot, including myself, artists suffer from the fact that what do I do next? What now? Yeah. It, especially it comes, writers. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. Especially when you do something really awesome, 
That's the worst when mm-hmm. it's done and you succeed. It's like, well, now what? Yeah. Or, or even worse than that is when you do something bad, but the public likes it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, then you think, yeah. well, you got to keep doing. Uh, it's I, like I, the hit song is always <laughs> your lead. Like, I can't believe we wrote breakfast at tiffany's uh, i used to do eye candy you know landscapes and i i have a lot of friends that still do that but i have no interest in it now and when i see mine hanging on people's walls i just think god that, that was so a sunset come on burr what yeah think? what was i thinking it's only one anzalino i mean seriously <laughs> yeah, he did it and now it's over yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so what oh, what have you not done that you really want to do um photographically golly commercially i did a little bit of everything from food to architecture art wise i'm looking forward to doing these uh uh, phony uh snapshots yeah the snapshots supposed to be honest like you wouldn't go get the johnson kids across the street because yours are too ugly to stand in front of the christmas tree yeah (laughs) i mean you know what i'm saying you snapshots by nature are honest because it's your kids ugly or not you know so uh i like the idea of making fake honest snapshots Mm. just that's that project we were talking about earlier so yeah and i haven't done anything quite like that yet yeah particularly with the big production and, and uh where i hire some people I was going to use amateurs, uh, not amateurs, but just people that fit the part. Yeah. But they take it over because people don't realize they do that. They want the photograph to be theirs. Yeah. And it's yours. Well, you've got my number. Um, <laughs> you ready to, uh, you ready I'm, I'm to go there? Okay. I'm ready to, to sit around and, and, and if look. You, if you don't like the way you look, look you're not going to say anything. Oh, no, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm good to go. <laughs> okay. Never embarrassed. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. Good. Well, Bird, thank you so much for coming in, man. I enjoyed it. I oh, always really? enjoy seeing you, Glenn. Yeah, and I appreciate And I this. only want to say thank you. That that studio yeah. ends up to be the coolest it's thing. So you cool. know just it's what. So cool. and, and I live <laughs> in the middle of it. It's like I'm truly living the life. It's just one big room, and I sleep in the middle of it. I don't have any furniture. I just, you know, a bed. It looks almost like a porno studio. Yeah. <laughs> the bed's off to the side, yeah. but, you know. No, yeah. but I, I love it. It's perfect for me. That's awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming yeah. over. Okay. Thank you, Glenn. There you have it. Bird Williams the Fourth. Go check him out on Facebook. He posts some of his pictures he takes around town. They're great. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.